Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you, always, to the very end of the age. When I was in college, I was a part of a parachurch campus ministry that came out of the Campus Crusade for Christ. And every year, they would go on a spring break mission trip called Big Break. They'd go down to Daytona Beach in Florida, where the rest of the college world would be spring breaking, and they'd set themselves to evangelize the spring breakers. They would walk up to people who were on the beach, otherwise having a good time, and start to talk to them about Jesus. I never went on that trip. I've been to the beach many times. I went there this summer with my family. And when I was at the beach, you, you know what I wanted to do? Be at the beach, having fun with my family, not talking to random people I'd never met before. And it is this concept of evangelism that has come to dominate our understanding of what the term means. I have nothing against people who walk up to people they don't know and start to talk to them about Jesus or about the church. I have a lot of respect and admiration for people who have the personality and temperament to do that. I don't. It's not who I am. I say all this because it's easy to think that this is what evangelism is walking up to people you don't know and talking to them about Jesus. And if you don't have the personality to do that, then evangelism isn't for you. That's how I felt growing up in the church. Oftentimes, we conceive of evangelism as trying to get others to agree to a certain set of beliefs. We have a list of if-then propositions or a list of axioms, and we need people to say yep to each one of them. We have a specific worldview, and we want others to give assent to this worldview. But this isn't what evangelism really means. Evangelism is a word that comes from Greek that refers to a messenger who brought good news. Evangelists are literally bearers of good news. Think of the angels in the Linus Bible verse from Luke. Uh, I didn't actually know when I wrote this that we were going to be doing Christmas, so it all, it, it all connects... Um, but in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, the Linus verse, Behold, we bring you glad tidings of great joy. They were evangelists, bearers of good news. When have you been a bearer of good news? I wrestled in high school, and there was one tournament where I was the champion of my weight class. The fact that there was only one tells you everything else you need to know about my wrestling career. But I remember what it was like to go and tell members of my extended family that I was the champion. For years, ever since I was six years old, I wanted to go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I did not go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill because uh, being not from North Carolina, it's really tough to get in. Um, I, was, I applied early and was deferred, then I was waitlisted. 
One night, I got an email from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill saying that I had been let in off the wait list. And I bounded down the stairs shouting to my parents, I got in! I got in! I was so excited to have this good news, which was not coincidentally good news to my father, <laughs> who was really excited that I had gotten excited about going to a state school. And I did, and it was great. But it was incredible news to me that I had gotten into the school of my dreams. I remember, I don't want to do the math, a few years ago when I ordered an engagement ring. And I remember not being able to keep that good news even from the person that I was going to surprise ask to marry me. <laughs> when have you had good news to share? How did that feel? How have you shared good news? What is it like to be a bearer of good news? That's what it means to be an evangelist. To be a bearer of good news. Let's hear our scripture passage again. The passage where the disciples and us are given a great commission. And hear it with an eye towards bearing good news. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you, always, to the very end of the age. This passage is bursting with good news. After Christ was crucified and raised from the dead, Jesus appears to the eleven disciples. Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, to Jesus. Rome doesn't have the ultimate authority. Death doesn't have the ultimate authority. Satan doesn't have the ultimate authority. Christ does. What amazing news. What incredible news. Go and spread this news, disciples, inviting people to follow the one who has the ultimate authority and won't yield it the way that Rome does, the way that Satan does, the way that death does. But will use it to love and serve others, even and especially the most vulnerable among us. And as we go and spread this news, Christ himself, the one who has ultimate authority over all things in heaven and on earth, Christ himself will be with us always. Even more incredible news. Evangelism is telling good news. It's telling the good news that the story of God is playing out in our world and in our lives. It's telling others that the grand story of redemption, a story we see laid out in scripture, is happening here and now. It's telling others that the story of God is playing out in their lives. It's saying that God is with us, God is for us, today, now, and even until the end of the age. This is some of the best news of all time that we have to tell. And we have tons and tons of people who need to hear it. And Christ himself is with us as we go to spread this good news. So, what is the holdup? What is the problem? Why is evangelism such a bad word? Am I good? Oh, did I, did I pop it out? I don't know what I did. Why is just mentioning evangelism? 
socialism hanging the speakers go out. <laughs> I have no clue what happened. I don't know. How about I do this? Oh, that's what I did. You get so excited. I got so excited. All right, keep the hand motions under control. In his book, Evangelism in the Inventive Age, David Paget argues that we have entered into a new age in the history of humanity. He says that there have been four ages throughout the last 200 years of American society. The agrarian age, the industrial age, the information age, and now the inventive age. These ages dominate what we think, what we value, what we do, and most importantly for evangelism, how we do it. Paget argues that our understanding of evangelism comes straight out of the information age. As a result of the growth in manufacturing and shipping industries, people had greater access to books, newspapers, radios, and TVs in the early part of the 20th century. Knowledge and information became the most valuable assets to culture. In that age, we revered people who spoke to us with authority, who could give us knowledge that we ourselves did not have. Think of how we looked at TV anchors in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We revered these men who had incredible wisdom and gave us knowledge that we ourselves did not have. Now, think about how we think of TV news anchors now. In that era, educated clergy brought to us knowledge about Christianity that we ourselves did not possess, and we appreciated and relied upon their further education to unlock spiritual truths for us. The goal of evangelism became bringing spiritual truths to people who did not know them, telling people about Jesus and Christianity who had never heard about either. Evangelism and apologetics became necessarily linked. But as the great poet Robert Dillon said, the times, they are a-changing. The information age has given way to the inventive age. What happened to get us to this point was the immense proliferation and expansion of knowledge. Everyone has access to all the information we could ever need. It's called Wikipedia. Paget writes, right now we live in a world filled with ideas and tools and discoveries we couldn't have imagined 20 years ago. Bioengineered corn is grown in the African desert. You can carry a library's worth of books in your hand and your entire CD collection in your pocket. End quote. He also says, quote, in 1963 the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office processed 90,982 applications. In 2008, it processed 485,312. While the U.S. population doubled in that time, patent applications increased by more than five times." End quote. I'm also told by someone with knowledge of the situation uh, that the amount of data produced in the last two years is ten times the amount of data that was produced from the beginning of time to 2015. Think about that. From the beginning of time to 2015, we produced one-tenth the amount of data as we've produced in the last two years. This has profound implications for how we tell other people about Jesus Christ. 
For one thing, we aren't going to be telling people anymore things they don't have access to. Even those that have no experience of the church can quickly Google Christianity and consume an immense amount of information. Another seismic shift in culture that we have seen as a result of the inventive age is that curation is of greater value than accumulation. This is what I mean by that. I can, with incredible ease, download an immense amount of music onto my phone. It is no longer a virtue to have an expansive music collection, much to John's chagrin. Instead, instead of having all the music, what's now important is to have the right music, to have the right songs, to have the right albums from the right bands. There is so much TV that you can watch now. There is so, so many new shows coming out. It is impossible to watch it all. So it's not a matter of watching all the TV or a lot of TV. It's a matter of watching the right shows. Curating our choices and managing our allegiances is the new currency in the, event, in the inventive age. Additionally, Paget adds, quote, children, young adults, and even older folks no longer wonder what they will be when they grow up. Now we ask, what do I want to do with my life? How do I want to spend my time? What can I contribute? End quote. What becomes of paramount importance is the things with which, uh, in the things with which we align isn't are we backing the right ideology, but are the things with which we are aligning ourselves meaningful? important? Am I making an impact with my choices? Paget says that one of the big things that has changed is we have moved from beliefs as a Jenga tower to beliefs as a web. Well, he doesn't say Jenga tower. I say Jenga tower because it's fun. And Jenga is a fun word to say. But he talks about foundationalism and how we looked at beliefs as stacked on top of one another. Some uh, beliefs being built the building blocks of others. And we need to get the bedrock beliefs right in order to literally build upon those to other spiritual truths. So what we wind up doing is a Jenga tower of faith. But that isn't how people build beliefs anymore. Instead, we have a web of truth. Webs incorporate. Webs diversify. Webs allow things to go in differing directions in ways that don't harm, but rather strengthen the ecology of the web. We set up our beliefs in webs now, which means that when we approach evangelism, we aren't asking people to build a new tower of belief, but to incorporate new beliefs into their ever-expanding web, which means beliefs are intensely personal, and it means our approach to evangelism needs to be personal and particular. Here's how this works, because I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you really quickly. I recently watched a movie called Liberal Arts that resonated with me and touched me and was a deeply emotional experience for me. If I came to you and said that the movie Liberal Arts is the best movie of all time, you would not reply back to me. You speak with authority. I will now build my understanding on what good movies are on the basis of Liberal Arts being the best movie of all time. Instead, if you really value my opinions on movies, which at this point have been proven to be questionable at best, you might go and watch liberal arts 
and incorporate your own view of the movie within a web of other thoughts you have about movies. Now this is a very silly way of explaining how we view authority, belief, and evangelism in the inventive age, but hopefully it made sense. Otherwise, I just got to talk about a movie that I liked. But what we have to see is that there is no singular authority on anything. No longer, in, no longer do we have singular points of authority. We no longer give complete assent to some sort of authority structure. We discover things ourselves and decide for ourselves what we will allow to have authority over us. Also, beliefs we don't hold are evaluated by the beliefs that we do currently hold and are synthesized into a larger belief web. And lastly, we evaluate beliefs based on the personal relationship we have to the evangelist. You'll watch a movie I recommend based on your relationship with me, or you won't watch a movie I recommend because you really know me. The same is true for evangelism. All of this means that in the inventive age, there is no one-size-fits-all evangelism pitch. You see, if evangelism is telling other people that the story of God is playing out in their lives, the way that looks, the way God encounters them, is going to be as particular as that person's life. So telling the news is incredibly unique. It is incredibly personal, and it is based on a relationship. One of the things Paget does in his book is to look at uh, different Enneagram types. If you've ever encountered the Enneagram, you know that there are Enneagram people who swear by the Enneagram that it is the greatest tool ever invented ever. It's also possible you've never heard of the Enneagram because very few people talk about the Enneagram, but those who do swear by it. The Enneagram is a personality inventory, similar to the Myers-Briggs, that tells you some things about yourself. The Enneagram have, has nine different personality types, and for each personality type, there is a deepest long, longing, greatest fear, um, and, and other things about that. So what, uh, oh, motive, driving emotion, struggle, okay. We're good. All those things. Uh, Paget then talks about evangelism. What he does is he takes those types and he talks about evangelism in terms of the way that God would reach, the way that the story of God would play out within each of those nine personality types. How this is instructive is because uh, it shows how God can reach or how we can evangelize different types of people who will hear things in different types of ways. What we see is that God truly wants to meet people where they are. God wants to use us to help God meet people where they are. Evangelism isn't about walking up to random strangers and trying to get them to buy into a passionless list of logical propositions. Instead, evangelism is deeply personal. It's about helping people you know and love see that God knows them and loves them too. It's about helping people come to know a God who is looking to redeem their lives, ally their deepest fears, and fulfill their deepest longings. It's about helping people see the story of God playing out in their lives. But in order to do that, we have to know their stories. So the next step in all this is how do we proclaim the good news in the midst of people's lives? How do we see the story of God 
how do we help them see that the story of God is unfolding in their lives and in the lives of people around us? Paget offers, this is the helpful part of the sermon, Paget offers three things we can do as precursors to evangelism. The first is listening. Paget writes, Evangelism in the inventive age will require listening not only to someone's words, but also to the story they are living. Now, this isn't something that just anyone can do um, if we just put our mind to it. Active listening is a skill, and it's a skill that needs to be developed by Christians who seek to bear Christ in the world in our new age. How often are we listening? How often are we really listening to the people closest to us? But we also have to go a step further. We have to really engage with the people around us. We have to ask deeper questions than how are you doing and aren't you surprised the Redskins aren't terrible this year? We have to ask not just what is going on in people's lives, but how they feel about what is taking shape. Oftentimes, people really do give us the opportunities to go deeper. More often than not, perhaps we don't take them. You see, when a tired parent talks about all the obligations and activities going on in her family's life, she is not communicating mere facts. Perhaps she is wanting to talk about the exhaustion she feels on a daily basis. Perhaps she is hinting at feeling like she is never enough, that she fears she is inadequate. Perhaps she is needing to hear that there is a God who gives her rest. Perhaps she is needing to hear that God's grace means she is enough. Can we listen to what is being said and plumb the depths of what is left unsaid? Can we be truly present to the people God has placed in our lives? When evangelism is first about listening to another person, then the other person becomes the focal point in the exchange. Rather than the other person being a means to my own end, namely conversion, I must be fully present and really truly love the other person. And if we are going to convey the love of God to someone, we have to approach them from a place of love. So we listen. Second thing we can do is to go first. Our starting point is listening, but that won't mean we don't have an active role in the conversation. Oftentimes, one of the best ways to bring the conversation to a deeper place is to go there first yourself. Being vulnerable is hard. Sharing the deepest longings of your heart, being open about your fears and anxieties is scary. Opening your soul to another takes courage. Nothing can forge a bond of trust like going first. If there's resonance in another's story to your life, share your hopes and your fears. So many of our conversations begin surface level and stay there. We can we can ask questions that will help get the other person to go deeper, but sometimes there will be resistance. Who wants to be the first person to get vulnerable? Who wants to risk the embarrassment of oversharing? Why not place that awkwardness and anxiety onto ourselves and be the ones to go first? Take the onus of moving the conversation forward onto yourself. Be the one to risk. Be the one to go deep. Lastly, non-identical repetition. Paget says, quote, the notion of non-identical repetition is that some stories in our lives repeat over time. End quote. It's why so many stories in the Bible have resonance even for, for people who don't claim to be Christians. The story of the Good Samaritan, of 
altruism and self-sacrifice connects with us on a basic human level. The story of the prodigal son, of a son rebelling against his father, of a son seeking forgiveness from his father, of a brother brooding over the poor choices of his junior sibling. These are universal stories. We see stories from scripture represented in other media, in literature, in music, in TV and movies. Les Mis is the greatest musical of all time. I'll fight to the death on that one. <laughs> and it's a story that really is all of our stories. A man finding redemption and then offering that redemption to others. Whether we see patterns emerging in our own lives or in the lives of others, whether we see traces of biblical stories in our lives or the lives of others, whether we see traces of other stories in our lives or in the lives of others, pointing these stories out can be a bridge to showing others how God's story is working out in their lives. I have long known that I was the older brother in the prodigal son story, but I never knew what to do with that. And then I read a book where the author was riffing on both characters in the story. Every time we talk about the prodigal son, we talk about the redemption the younger brother finds. Spoiler alert, in two weeks we're going to talk about the prodigal son and the redemption the younger brother finds. It's obvious. It's the whole point of the story. But this author talked not only about the redemption that was there for the younger brother, but also the redemption the father offers the older brother. How the older brother views his life as toil and the father says this should be for joy. How the father forgives the older son for the wrong beliefs he had about his father. How the son was welcomed to see his life serving the father as one of happiness and joy. How the son had already claimed his reward if he would only see it. I listened to the author talk about that story and saw how my story fit into that story of redemption. The Bible is a treasure trove of stories of redemption. Perhaps the key to evangelism is helping people see their story through the lens of one of the biblical stories of redemption. And in that way, seeing themselves as redeemed. The inventive age presents unique challenges to Christians who would seek to live out Jesus' call to make disciples of all nations. Our fundamental task is no longer one of education. Our fundamental task is no longer to disseminate information. Rather, we are called, we are tasked with helping others see how their lives, their stories are caught up in the mighty acts of our God in the world. We are called, we are tasked with helping others see their stories as part of the grand story that God is writing on our world and on our hearts. We are called, we are tasked with helping others see the story of God at work in their lives. I want to challenge you today. There's, uh, it was a short scripture, so in your lifeline, there is a lot of space at the bottom of the scripture page. Page three, if you will. I want you to think, to pray. Who is someone in your life that you can go and tell good news to? Tell the good news that their life is caught up in the grand story of God's redemptive acts. Who is someone that needs to hear that good news? And with the space on in your lifeline, I want you to write down those names. I said one name. Think of more. Because I bet 
if we're really honest with ourselves, there are multiple names we could put down of people who need to see themselves as loved by God, as redeemed by God. Write it down. If you don't have a pen, um, many of us have phones that have a notes app, um, or hold it in your mind until you can get over to our welcome table where there are pens. I ask you to do one more. It's a new podium. Next week, we are starting a sermon series called Defying Gravity. And it looks at how we can, the, the subtitle is Breaking Free from the Culture of More. Uh, spoiler alert, there are, the, the author write, or there are forces that work on us, whether we uh, realize them or not. Gravity being one of them. Um, for centuries in human history, we didn't know what gravity was. We just know that we got held to the earth and things fell back to the earth when we dropped them. And then we discovered that this was a force that was named gravity. Um, and then we discovered that we really don't know how it works. But don't think about that because it'll, it made me crazy. Um, the author argues that there is financial gravity that works on us, pulling us towards more and more consumption. And that God in Jesus Christ offers us a chance to break free and defy gravity through generosity. This is something we all need to hear. How we can break away from the forces that cause, cause us to consume more and more and more and more. So we have invite cards that have the sermon series on one side, and information about our church on the other. So here's my challenge to you. The names of the people that you write in your lifeline, or that you... Okay. See, we all have phones. Um, the names of the people that you write on your lifelines, or that you in your mind write on your lifelines. Take a card and give it to them. Um, and invite them to church. Or invite them into a deeper conversation about their hopes and their fears and their dreams. And as we close this sermon, go. Go into all the world. Go into Montclair and Manassas. Go into Dale City and Dumfries. Go into Lake Ridge and Four, and Four Seasons. Go into Woodbridge and Potomac Shores. Go into Stafford if you would risk 95. Make disciples of Jesus Christ. Help others see Christ alive in our world and in their lives. And lo, Christ will be with us always, even until the end of the age. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty and all-loving God, you have given us the